This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. The Big Interview, intriguing lives, remarkable careers, and gripping stories. I'm Sonal Rupani, alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. Jay Bastida, she is of Mexican origin. She's actually, um, she was raised in Mexico as part of the Atomi Toltec Indigenous Peoples and subsequently moved to New York. And she has become a prominent figure in this whole movement. Um, and there's loads to come from Jay. I- I'm... I'll be totally honest. Cards on the table here, okay? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm at this. Situ- I'm at the stage now. I feel like we are. You and me are in the kind of lost generation, if you will. When I say that, I mean it, the the two generations that that are kind of, or the three generations you could say that are really in play here. The youth, yeah, have been put, traditionally, and this is when it all started when Greta came out, pointing the fingers at kind of world leaders, right? You know, yeah. People in the generation before us. Is that a traditional thing or is that just a Greta thing? Like, I think youth at any point in time are the ones that do care the most about the environment. I remember being really passionate about this cause when I was young as well. And then it just kind of faded. I hate to say it. Do you you think my interest in it just faded as I grew older? Do you think it's reaching a critical point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of the scientists, all of the reports, all of the predictions indicate that it's very much already at, not reaching, but already at a critical point. Yeah. Uh, And listen, I'm aware of it. And I do care about it. And yet I'll be completely honest and say that I've not done enough yeah. to, to, change my, to change my lifestyle and my habits. I think there's different things that happen there, right? It's obviously harder to live by something even if you say that you believe in it. And the other aspect of that is I think that we don't think as an individual we can do much to make a difference, right? I think as the, the older that you get, you get this sense that, okay, what's my one action of using this one reusable thing going to really make in the big scheme of things. I mean, I do happen to think it's when the big corporations and governments come together to enact certain regulations, mm. that's what's going to really change things on a larger scale. Yeah. Let's hear let's hear what she's got to say. This this is actually um from a video that she put together, Imagine the Future, and this is Jay kind of envisaging her own future. We know that the crisis is getting worse every single day, and many of us are losing hope for our future. But despair is not an option. We must rise up and meet the greatest challenge of our lives with stubborn optimism. And imagining is the first step. So, are you ready to imagine? Jay Basida there. She sits on the administrative committee of the People's Climate Movement. She received the Spirit of the UN Award in 2018. In 2019, the climate strike, she mobilized 600 students from her school. She's taken a citywide leadership role in organizing climate strikes, and she's a member of Sunrise Movement and of Extinction Rebellion as well. Let's get into this interview. At what point, I asked her, did she develop an awareness for what was happening in the world, and with that, a passion for wanting to do something about it? Looking back at my time as an activist, you know, you always um, realize that you actually started caring before you thought you did. And I think that I have gone through that thought process over the past, you know, just over the past year. So, like, I have noticed actually that my passion started and was fostered because of my upbringing and how my parents decided to raise me. So my dad is Otomi, which is an indigenous group in central Mexico. So I grew up with that um, indigenous philosophy of reciprocity for Mother Earth and just knowing that Mother Earth gives, you have to give back. 
knowing that it's about living with the earth, not from it, which is what we have been doing. And, you know, growing up that way, I thought everybody in the world thought the same way I did, which is, I think, something that every kid thinks when they're growing up. So my bubble burst when I started seeing that there was actually a disconnect between what I knew was right, you know, reciprocity, living in harmony with what was actually happening, which is destruction, extraction, and other, you know, modern industries that are sadly taking away our future. So that's when I like became aware of the fact that not only was the climate crisis already happening, and I realized this because my hometown actually flooded when I was 13 years old in Mexico. So I realized that the crisis was already here, um, that the ones perpetuating the crisis were actually the same ones harming these communities when it comes to air pollution, water pollution, and that communities that are at the front lines, like my community, were the ones that were not only the most affected, but the least helped by the government, by, you know, NGOs, by things like that. So it was a lot of things that came together for me. You know, this realization of the injustice of the climate crisis, this realization of it's happening right now. And also from a spiritual perspective, it was just wrong uh, for for me to see that the world was profiting off of destruction. On one side of things, her there's something a bit scary about her, that she's got so much conviction and, and you know, so much uh, determination to, to make a big difference. Because, yeah, there's one thing to be aware of that problem and to have the foresight mm-hmm. and the, the general awareness to, to realise that there is a global issue at play here as a young kid. And she speaks unbelievably well. Yeah. 18, 18 years of old. I've got to keep underlining that. She's 18. I mean, most 18-year-olds will give you a three-word answer to a question, <laughs> the ones that I've encountered anyway. She was unbelievably eloquent about her subject matter and, and extremely well, well-researched. She's clearly well-read on it, and she's very measured as well. I think that's the other thing that will come across. Um, but as I, as I say, it's one thing to be aware of it. It's another thing to actually do something about it. And she, she admitted that, like most young people, she initially felt extremely overwhelmed about what to do and how to, how to go about making a difference in her own way. So she moved to New York and she said she felt a little bit lost until it was her dad, in fact, who actually gave her an opportunity. He made a timely suggestion. My dad actually told me that he was going to go to Malaysia for a conference, the World Urban Forum. And he said he couldn't go, so he put my name instead. And I flew by myself at 15 years old uh, to Malaysia to a UN conference to talk about the perspective of youth. And in that moment, I saw that people who have had heard the same things from other stakeholders were paying more attention to me because I was a youth voice that had experienced the climate crisis and that was telling them that, you know, there's there was no way that we didn't have climate curriculum. There was no way that I knew the things that I did because I decided to do that by myself. There was no way that all of these things were not only being kind of hidden from us, but also nothing, nothing immediate was being done about it from my perspective. So I saw that the, the energy in the room shifted. And that's when I became aware of the power of youth voices in the movement. 
which is why when I came back to New York, I decided to do everything in my power to not only foster that movement, but also, you know, take my place in it. That's almost the opposite of what you would expect. You would expect a room of, you know, people who are experienced as dignitaries, Mm. diplomats, whatever sort of function or purpose they're coming to an event like that for. Uh, not paying as much to attention be kind of, or to be a little patronizing, perhaps, as opposed to really genuinely listening and acting on it. So it's actually in, that's very heartening, I think, to hear that. Yeah, I think so. And also, I think you notice when a kid, a kid of 15 would and I would imagine she she spoke very well. Mm. It's scary enough to can you imagine flying across the world and yeah. giving a speech at a UN summit at 15 years of age? You're fearless when you're 15, I mean, Robbie. I could barely go I, on a family no, holiday without falling out with my brother at 15. You know <laughs> what? I would have much rather done that at 15 than do it now. I don't remember being 15. It was too long ago, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. It was far too long ago. But yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah, you are. The younger you are, the, the more, I, I suppose, cavalier your attitude is. And um, I guess that gave her the grounding, the belief that she could make a difference, given the, the reaction that she, she had when she went over to Malaysia. So I asked her what steps she took from there. She joined her local environmental club in New York. She began organising outings to lobby politicians at the town hall. And it was during this period that she became convinced in the power of the youth movement. Everything changed so fast because the club was always a place where it it felt like not enough was being done for me, in my opinion. Mm. It felt like we were talking too much about challenges to be vegan for one day uh, rather than structural change that we could uh, influence as youth who have stakes in the future. So when we started organizing to actually have a wider impact, I became really optimistic of the power of youth in this space. Obviously, politicians were just agreeing with us and not doing much. So that's when I heard about the global climate strikes that were being organized by Fridays for Future. So I organized my own in my school. And then I met organizers from all over the city and started Fridays for Future NYC. So much get up and go. Yeah, just getting getting things done, having the idea and acting on it. It's impossible not to respect that. Yeah, and it is one of those things. I know you talked to Jay at some point about the pandemic, but it is something it was gaining such momentum. Yeah, It was really at this kind of peak and, and gaining so much traction before the pandemic that it's so unfortunate, really, the it, timing of that. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. And, well, she actually comments on, on what we have learned as a society from dealing with it and how it can best inform kind of how we go moving forward from this. But mm-hmm. um, I did want to kind of get a sense of the messaging that Jay and her fellow activists are using. Because obviously the, the messaging that we are accustomed to from, from Greta is... It's 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 harsh. It's mm-hmm. it's strong. You know, it's unapologetic. It's uh, it's accusatory. And we've become familiar with Greta's kind of rhetoric, if you like. Are the rest of the youth movement following that lead? Our messaging has definitely evolved, not only within the climate movement, but also just uh, within the youth climate movement. At first, I think the youth climate movement was being a little and rightly so um, using language that was a little, I think, damaging to the movement. Uh, In honesty, I think that saying that the adults didn't do enough and that they're stealing our future is divisive. Uh, So I made it my goal to make the climate movement as inclusive as possible, um, recognizing that obviously my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation didn't do the best they could for 
you know, the future of my kids and my grandkids. But we cannot lose all this time talking about the things that we didn't do. We need to start doing the things that are going to actually save us and save our, our futures and our ecosystems and our communities. So I think that we have shifted to that messaging. You know, we need everyone. The climate crisis is an intersectional issue, meaning that anything that you think about is influenced or connected to the climate crisis in a certain way. That realization has inspired people to take their own passions, their own work, and turn them into climate action. Um, so, for example, just having this podcast, you know, your love for having a podcast and then having guests like me who can speak about these issues or being part of the architect community and building houses that are better insulated so that our energy costs go down, which means our consumption of fossil fuels go down. Um, so we all have a part to play. And I think that that's the most beautiful thing about having such a tremendous crisis is that there are many more opportunities to not only find ourselves and our purposes as individuals, but as as humanity as a whole and use our powers of create creativity and innovation to build the world we want to see. Uh, so interesting that she's like well, trying to make a break from that rhetoric I of think, a year or two ago. I think they've realized that they're not going to get where they want to get if they maintain that, that very aggressive stance. I think, mm. as you pointed out earlier, it was necessary initially to get attention, mm. to come out all guns blazing and say, this is not acceptable, but you can't keep saying it. People will not be receptive to your demands if you keep on banging that drum. And uh, I think even Greta herself has, has mellowed to a degree. And I think a lot of that is to do with the circumstances. Obviously, the pandemic has robbed the youth movement of a lot of their momentum, mm. uh, as Jay will explain. And she'll also explain a little bit about the influence of Greta. But I, I wanted to get a, a, a sort of sense of how change is being enacted. And what she told me is that it's proven a lot easier to do it at a local level than it has to go further up the field. We want different things from everyone, but we are still not seeing all of these connect. So, for example... I think that we can have a lot more impact if we work with our local politicians on, you know, what what is the accepted level of pollution, which should be obviously close to none. What is the accepted level of, you know, the energy that we use in our buildings, uh, the number of cars that are on the street, how efficient our trans public transportation system is. And that is something that can only be affected by local politicians. But when it comes to international politicians, like those in, that we encounter at the United Nations, you know, we think as youth that this, that process of all the cops that we've had and the IPCC um, report having been out and multiple versions of it having been out, they have not even been incorporated into the Paris Agreement. So we think that that process is obviously going really slow and it has to speed up. When you actually read the Paris Agreement, you know, a lot of the targets are not even enough to actually get us uh, below two degrees of warming from pre-industrial levels. So I think that we are trying to push all those fronts at the same time, pushing ourselves, pushing our local community and pushing the international community to have goals that actually work for the world we want to build. And so, yeah, I, I would say that's like the message that I advocate for is inclusivity, intersectionality, working cross-sectorally. And even when it comes to companies, you know, we used to 
and rightly so, like shame a lot of companies for, you know, 100 companies produce 71% of greenhouse gas emissions. But are we going to get farther completely neglecting that conversation and that they will keep doing uh, the same things that they have been doing or engaging in conversations that actually change their production practices and engaging in conversations that change our consumption patterns. So I think that we have realized that there is so much work to be done that it's not just one thing that we have to be part of. It's like basically everything that we tap into on a daily basis has to be changed. Just from a common sense perspective, what she's saying there about changing the local, sort of starting um, grassroots. Mm. And then once you kind of start to change the norm, then you can see how that would take hold. You know, you start in one location and let it have a ripple effect across other places. That makes so much sense to me. Yeah, rather than just barnstorm into those 70 companies she mentioned and and make ridiculous demands. I mean, you put pressure on them to change their ways by changing the ways of the local community. And And what uh, society will accept from them. It's an amazingly mature approach when you think about it, isn't it? It really is. And um, it's impossible not to mention Greta in these conversations. I had to ask Jay on her opinion on uh, on Greta and, and Greta's role in the movement. And this was her response. You know, Greta's impact has definitely been international and felt all over the world. And Greta and I have worked closely in a lot of different uh, strikes that we've organized, you know, when she came to New York. Um, Fridays for Future NYC, the group that I co-led, was the one who received it. And we felt that, you know, her as a figure in the movement, you know, was bringing attention to a lot of issues happening in other parts of the world. What I mean by that is that once you know your place in the movement and her place in the movement is kind of attracting attention to wherever she goes, whatever she talks about. So when she came to the U.S., when she came to New York, when she came to the United Nations, she actually put a lot of pressure on politicians here to actually do things. So I think that, you know, that's her power. Her power is that she can make conversations happen when people who don't want them to happen are there. She's the hype girl for the movement (laughs) is what she is. It really is. That's exactly what it is. I guess the next question for her was, I mean, I've watched the, I keep banging on about this documentary by David Attenborough, The Life on Our Planet. But you, when you watch that, you're struck by a sense of urgency about the situation. And there are still so many influential people out there just flat out in denial that there is an issue whatsoever. So I asked Jay whether the tide was turning when it comes to combating the issue. I am 100% sure that the tide is turning. And I think that the pandemic kind of slowed the momentum that we had as a youth movement because, you know, we were planning to have even bigger strikes for this year, for twenty for the past year, 2020. And so we as youth can't wait to get back on the streets because even though the tide was turning and we saw that, you know, international momentum come in September when we had the global climate strike, It's not been fast enough, in my opinion. And I say this because even though a lot of things have changed, you know, we're still facing a lot of other social issues that need to be addressed. I'm talking about, you know, gender inequality. I'm talking about racism. I'm talking about immigration. Things that are being stigmatized to a point where we can't focus on intersectional solutions. Mm. And so I don't want to see climate solutions that only talk about the fact that we need to draw down carbon. 
I want to see climate solutions that talk about the fact that carbon capture uh, systems such as, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of offsets being really popular right now uh, by airline, by the airline industry. And we don't talk about the justice aspect of those uh, solutions. So I don't see many people talking about the fact that when an airline does offsets, they actually just buy a piece of land from probably the Amazon or some forest in South America, which takes it away from people uh, from, from that country or from that, that area. And then because, um, you know, an airline industry might be headquartered in the United States, then both Brazil and the United States can engage in double counting, which basically means counting that they both uh, say that the same plot of land drew down a, a certain amount of, amount of carbon for both countries. So I'm seeing a lot of loopholes happening. I'm seeing a lot of people trying to still maximize profits, still do things uh, in a way that for me looks like greenwashing. So even though the tide is turning on the, I guess, popular side of we actually do have to engage in climate solutions, I want those solutions to be real. I want those solutions to have people's lives in mind. I want those solutions to be just and you know, be intersectional and have them be a just transition to the future that we want to see. So again, impossible not to be impressed by Jay Bastida greenwashing. She's called it out. She's calling it for what it is. And she alluded to the sort of short-termist thinking mm. that has been plaguing, well, society at large in general, really, but especially when you look at something that, you know, it, it requires the foresight to see decades into the future when we're so preoccupied with the here and now, now, none more so than with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I asked her what impact that had had on the climate movement. This was her answer. The whole world has suffered a lot from COVID-19. And it's really saddening for me to see that, you know, countries like the United States who say that they want to be leaders in solutions, right? Um, I've heard, even though we didn't practice that in the last administration, I did hear many times that the United States has to be a leader in climate solutions. But when you think about how they handled and how we are handling the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, I think that there's a lot of work to be done um, in our response to crises. That said, I think that we did learn a lot, uh, especially from the perspective of the youth climate movement. We have learned a lot about ourselves, the movement, and what to do about things like having the crisis right on your face uh, from the pandemic. We have learned about solidarity. I think all of us learned about solidarity. We have learned about self-care. Um, which is really important if you if we want more people to be activists. You know, activism can be really tiring, but when we have that regenerative culture in our activism life, it makes it more sustainable. And that's what we need because we can have all of us burning out in, in five or ten years mm. when the crisis is just about to uh, hit a turning point. You know, we learned about how our individual actions can have systemic impact and have systemic impact can systemic choices by companies and governments can influence us individually. Uh, so, you know, there's a big debate in the climate movement as to what's more important, systemic change or individual change. And I think that the COVID-19 pandemic taught us, you know, both are important. You know, uh, lockdowns are important for people to know the guidelines and individual action of staying at home is important for 
the overall system to be better. So I think that that's what we want to translate to the climate movement as well. How are systemic actions impacting systemic change and how is systemic change that we can advocate for going to impact and make system individual actions easier? It was actually time to ask about what kind of future she envisages for our society and our planet. We already have all of the solutions that we need to build the future that we want to see. I would definitely recommend that you watch 2040, the documentary 2040, because it shows you how the world would look like in 2040 if we implemented all of the existing climate solutions right now. So what that future looks like for me is very largely inspired by that documentary because it showed me that things are possible. You know, it's a future where cities are built for people, not for cars. It's a future where we have fully a fully electrified grid, a future where we have as an a system of agriculture that is not as destructive and violent as the one that we have right now, uh, where we eat more locally where we are connected internationally in mind and spirit, but we are aware of the impact that, you know, globalization is having on carbon emissions, on human rights, on mass production of fast fashion. So for me, I think that it's really, you know, that saying of think globally, act locally. I want to see people uh, practicing that, taking agency of their own actions so that they can have the, an impact that is global while keeping in mind that doing things locally is better for everyone, for businesses in your area, for the economy in your area, uh, and overall for the health of the planet. So, you know, this future for me is ultimately all about joy. And I think that the climate movement is about joy. It's about happiness. It's about love. Because we are doing all of this so that our kids have the liberty and the freedom to be happy. We are doing all of this because we don't want violence and we don't want pain. And I think that that is the essence of this movement. We are fighting for our right to be happy uh, because when we have a stable climate, when we have a stable society, we, we are happier and we find a purpose on the things that we want to do. Well, listen, if you are curious as to Jay, Jay's advice as to what we can all do, take a listen to this final clip, Jay Bastida, on what we can do to make a difference. The advice that I would give you is that if you're already starting about thinking about where to start, you've already started. And there's a lot of things that that we can do individually. You know, you, you've definitely heard about recycling and trying to eat less meat and trying to buy clothes that don't have polyester in it and that are not from the fast fashion industry, trying to thrift. And a lot of things are super important. But I think the most important thing that we can do um, is change our mindsets. Because we have this mindset that climate activism is a hobby. We have this mindset that climate activism is something that kids do on a Friday when they skip school. But climate activism needs to be our way of life. Um, It needs to be the lens, climate justice needs to be the lens through which we do all of our actions. It needs to be, you know, the way in which we frame the future and the present. So that's my biggest advice. Um, Change your mindset completely to an optimistic mindset of we can do this. And, you know, the mindset of those around you. And once you do that, everything else will feel easy. Everything else will come naturally. And I feel like even our passion for the movement 
becomes deeper when, you know, we come from a place of heart and a place of spirit, you know, and from that place of love is where we can actually build a, a good future, yeah. not from a place of, of being upset. And so there you have it. Like, like so many things in life, it begins with positivity. If you want to affect change, if you want to achieve something, you have to have a positive mindset. No yeah. one got to a place of success thinking negatively. Listen, Jay Bastida, uh, you're going to hear a lot more from her. She's going to become a very influential voice, I'm sure. Props to producer Tom for tracking her down. And a big thank you to Jay for sparing the time to chat to us. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. This podcast was presented by Chris McCarty, Sonal Rupani, and Robbie Greenfield, and produced by Tom Paul Smith. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.